You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music and technology. On this week's episode, we have the latest chapter in the Music Modernization Act Chronicles. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Mechanical Licensing Collective, aka the MLC, which recently announced that it received nearly half a billion dollars in historical unmatched royalties from DSPs, along with the corresponding data that identifies the usage related to these royalties. I'm going to go a little bit slow this time because even though my PR firm is helping to publicize what the MLC is up to, this is complicated stuff for those of us who are not lawyers or music licensing experts. So luckily, we've got a lawyer on the line with us who just also just so happens to be the CEO of the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC. Chris Aaron, thanks for joining us. How are you? Hey, Dimitri. Doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here to help us understand what the MLC is up to. I'm going to kick it off with a question. Who from the music tech world and music business should be paying attention to what the MLC is up to? Well, definitely uh, anyone who works in the music publishing space. So publishers, administrators, and then, of course, songwriters, because the revenue stream that we're going to be administering relates to musical works, the song side of the business. Um, beyond that, on the tech side, I think um, there are lots of tech companies and music tech companies that will find what we're doing interesting, uh, particularly companies that are focused on the data aspects of the music business. As I know you know, so much of the business now is driven by and dependent on, on the flow of accurate data, and um, the MLC is no exception. Um, I think within that group, there are two ways to think about our data. One, um, I think there's going to be increasing opportunities for companies that can help provide solutions to uh, folks um, who work in publishing or are songwriters to help them get their data into the system accurately. And then I also think there are interesting opportunities for companies that are looking to leverage data. It's one of the really um, nice hallmarks of the MMA, um, the piece of legislation that led to the creation of MLC, is that it requires the MLC to make available all of the musical works ownership data in our database, um, publicly available for, um, for a nominal cost or free. Um, it's free to anyone to check it on our website, but you can also download in bulk um, all of the data in our database related to that musical works ownership information. And um, we're currently charging 100 bucks to set that up and 25 bucks a month after that. So interesting opportunities there for folks who want to look at some data. Wow, that let's start off with a bang there. That's a really interesting <laughs> aspect that I wasn't even thinking about. Um, the 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 available once you create this database to 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 fulfill your mission to making that available. Super interesting. All right. Well, I want to do a little more stage setting, Chris. So let me see if I get this right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> All right. So that, just to set some set some stage for for we have a diversity of listeners. I just want to do a little background. Up until this year. Music streaming services were required to obtain a mechanical license for each song that was downloaded or streamed on an interactive service. That's a service where a user can search for and play a specific song. And my understanding is that the mechanical license was originally a license that allowed you to record a composition with a machine and reproduce the recording of that composition onto a physical product like a wax cylinder, a vinyl record, a compact disc, basically something playable on a machine. So when everything went to digital, 
there was some confusion, I think, about how that translated into a music listening world where no physical product was changing hands. And over time, the legal framework, I think, evolved that, yes, indeed, you do need a mechanical license for the, uh, from the composition's rights holder, and a royalty needed to be tracked, collected, and paid for each download or stream. Am I good so far, Chris? Uh, you, uh, you are, and I, I love where you started because um, I think it's, it's always helpful to, to, to frame sort of the legal part of the business um, in terms um, that, that help people understand where it started. And you were referring to, I think, um, even before wax cylinders, um, which were the ways that we made vinyl um, early on, uh, 1909, the Copyright Act, the, the primary form of copying songs back then was on player piano rolls. So the, the term mechanical license literally originates back in the player piano days when you had to make copies of those player piano rolls that you would feed into a player piano to then make the sound um, of music. So uh, yes, the, the concepts are quite old and the shift to digital uh, definitely um, kept a lot of lawyers busy. But I will say this, I think from the rights holder perspective, it was always pretty clear that you still needed that mechanical license. I think there was perhaps a shift in that a lot of the digital services that arose initially didn't focus on that part of the, uh, of the, the business they were building. And, um, and that has been an unfortunate trend because it often means that services get successful before they properly license rights. And then um, that can lead to some awkward negotiations or even litigation while they um, figure out how to get on the right side of the law and the right side of the rights holder relationship. Makes sense. Great. Yeah, I pr appreciate that. So, so what we're sort of saying is the DSPs, the, the streaming, the music streaming companies kind of found it very hard to handle all those pieces. Uh, maybe they didn't quite understand it, or maybe it was technical, but especially since their primary distribution deals were with record labels or distributors rather than publishers or publishing administrators is sort of how I see it. In fact, some of the DSPs simply told the distributors that they needed to distribute the publishing related royalties. Um, of course, that was not a foolproof system either, and the onus went back to the DSPs to solve it, I think. In theory, maybe this would have all worked out over time, but was either taking too long or breaking along the way, and rights holders lobbied for legislation for a better way to make sure no money was getting lost along the way. And as you referred to, Chris, along came the Music Modernization Act that uh, was, a, you know, allowed U.S.-based DSPs to have a mechanical, a blanket mechanical license for the use of recordings of compositions. And so, as of January 1st, 2021, the major streaming services are using this blanket mechanical license and are required to send monthly usage reports and mechanical royal payments to you at the MLC. And then the MLC matches the song usage activity to the appropriate musical works owners using the data in the MLC's database and distributes the royalties it has received to music publishers, musical works administrators, and self-administered songwriters, composers, and lyricists. And one more thing before I test, see how my score is on this. We should add that the MLC is a nonprofit and collects no fees on these royalties. How'd I do, Chris? Uh, yeah, that was great. Okay. And there, you covered a lot of ground. The, um, the one thing I would, uh, would say is certainly uh, the, the, the market had for decades worked such that the companies that released records were responsible for clearing the mechanicals. So you think back to the vinyl days or CD days, record companies were the ones that cleared those mechanical rights and then passed those rights along as they released the product. 
And when the, the shift to digital happened, they continue to do that with respect to downloads. And that is still uh, the norm um, in the download space. But in the streaming space, the publishers did um, establish direct relationships with streaming companies where the streaming companies were licensing those mechanical rights directly from them. And, um, and in that way, the business changed a bit because the publishers were now having direct relationships with the people using the rights. They were not working through an intermediary, in that case, record companies. But I, I think the, the fundamental challenge that really led to the, the, the passage of the law was that because digital services don't have inventory, inventory constraints the way that a physical um, uh, seller would, right? Think about any record store you ever went into. There was only so much shelf space. And even the best, biggest record stores um, like Amoeba and Hollywood or some of the Tower Records outlets, they can only fit so much in the walls um, of the store. But in a digital environment, you've got essentially unlimited inventory. So now where you've got digital services in this country that can be offering as many, if not more than 70 million sound recordings um, that feature you know, millions of musical works, it was really the scale of the business that I think became the impediment in a system that either way still required those clearances to be secured on a work by work basis. It's really hard to do something one at a time when you have to do it millions of times um, uh, over and over again. Gotcha. So you're saying the scale of what shifted in digital is part of what led to needing a change in how this was all handled. Yes. And the blanket license obviously solves that because now the digital services can secure that blanket license um, once and it gives them the ability to use any song that exists in the world. They don't have to go and clear those songs one by one. Um, But in exchange for that, they've got a a bunch of other requirements, um, including providing the MLC with much more usage data, data about the, the works that were used on their services, which then we will be able to use to make that connection you described, the match between the sound recording and the musical works that ultimately will allow us to distribute the mechanical royalties we receive to the proper rights holders. And um, you talked about who those are, but I'll wait and let us, you know, we'll come back to that. I think that's yeah. important to clarify too. Cool. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot in the intro, but we've set the table <laughs> now and uh, we can move on to the appetizer. <laughs> so, yeah. so, But let, let's keep it big picture at first. Um, and then we'll get into those details um, on on various intricacies around this. How big of an impact is this going to have on the music industry, and especially in terms of money flowing to rights holders? Yeah, well, the hope is that we will um, we will ensure that much more money is effectively flowing from the DSPs to the rights holders. That that is the promise of the both the blanket license and then the centralized organization that the MLC is um, administering that blanket license. So um, again, in the past, each digital service had to figure out how it was going to account to rights holders. And even if they chose an administrator that did that for other companies, that was still a one-off solution that each DSP had to find for itself. Now the MLC has the ability to provide that solution for every DSP that operates under the blanket. And already we've seen, um, I think our notice count is um, past 40 now. Those are all posted on our website. So we're essentially providing that service for more than 40 DSPs, and that number is going to continue to grow. So that that streamlines things for the digital services. It streamlines things for the rights holders on the receiving end, and uh, and that will hopefully be one of the things that helps the money flow um, better than it had in the past. 
Got it. Okay. As a PR guy, I'm not on the inside negotiations, but from the sidelines, it seems like labels have been very happy with the rise of streaming, that revenue is caught up with and past the good old days of the CD heyday, but publishers and songwriters don't seem as happy from the sidelines. How much of a dent will the MLC be able to put in that difference of opinion? Sure. Well, I think another important thing to note is the MLC is a bit unique in that we are not an advocacy organization, which means um, we do not get involved in advocating for what the rates should be. Um, but you are right. I think that publishers and songwriters have strong views about um, the fact that the rate should be higher. Um, our job is to make sure that um, all the connections work well so that uh, whatever the deal is, whatever those rates wind up being, um, the rights holders are getting um, the full benefit of those rates. So, you know, I, I liken it to your plumbing, right? If you turn on the tap in your kitchen sink and water comes out, you're happy. But if you knew that a whole bunch of water was dripping because there were leaks all throughout the, the pipes going back to the street, you wouldn't be as happy. And in this case, the taps are producing money. And so, of course, we want to make sure that all the money that gets put into the system comes out and gets to rights holders. And the MLC is designed for that to happen. But again, the goal is to connect with every rights holder and to get them 100% of what they're due. Um, that's the goal. So it, it will make, hopefully make things better for the folks that receive money. And then it's, um, it's on them to continue their efforts to advocate for what they think the rights should be. The digital services do that as well on the other side. And the MLC does not get involved in that process. Got it. Okay. Look, we're going to take a quick break for an announcement. And when we come back, Chris, I'm going to ask you a little bit about if you guys have a role on checking up on the accuracy of usage data. We'll be right back. Thanks to everyone who's been participating in Together Tuesdays, our weekly virtual meetup in the Music Tectonics community app. I want to highlight a few of my favorite conversations from the past month. Dan Runcie, founder of Trapital Media, who you've heard here on the podcast, held an Ask Me Anything session that started some great conversations about the business of hip hop. Shout out to Christina, Baz, Michael, Deji, and Zainab for joining in. And thanks to Dan for sharing his knowledge with us. When Eleanor asked for your favorite stories about music and science, Stu pointed to an eerie sonic representation of the coronavirus, and Luciana mentioned my podcast interview with Matt Neutra when we talked about the science and engineering behind Bose headphones and wearables. Thanks for listening to that, Luciana. And I had a great conversation with her on the music tech trends we're most excited about. We talked about how rights tech is poised to revolutionize things for a lot of creators, the boom in indie music creation, and Luciana's own femme noise platform for empowering women in the music industry in Latin America. Cool stuff. What do you want to talk about? Join us next Tuesday in the Music Tectonics community app starting at 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 11 a.m. Pacific or 7 p.m. in the UK. Global listeners, participants are welcome. Post, comment, share links, and use the hashtag TogetherTuesday to get involved. Ask each other questions, discuss recent podcast episodes, or share the music tech and music biz news of the week. We post a lot of that there as well. And if you're a member of Clubhouse, join me at the same time for an audio-only music tech chat. Yes, an Android app is coming, they say. We hope so. We want the whole world involved. If you're not on the Music Tectonics community app yet, which, by the way, is cross-platform, I'll tell you how to join in at the end of the episode. Okay, we are back with uh, Chris Arend, the CEO of the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC. And I wanted to ask you, Chris, will the MLC have a role in checking up on the accuracy of the usage data getting reported to you from the uh, DSPs? Absolutely. Yeah, we have the right to audit the DSPs. And, um, and before that, we have the right to... Um, 
uh, review the data that comes in and check to see if there are issues or anomalies that, that don't make sense. We can request more information from them. So we are absolutely looking at what comes um, to us um, to see if there are any red flags that could suggest a problem with um, what we're receiving. And you know, I want to go back again to the point of uh, I made earlier about data. Uh, you know, data is complex, and often um, something can go wrong in a system. Uh, not because someone intentionally tried to do it, but because something didn't connect right or a new variable was introduced or something unexpected happened. So you know, monitoring the, the data over time and seeing what the trends are is one of the ways that the MLC will be able to check the accuracy of the data. We see a big jump in a particular data point from month to month. That can be a red flag that something happened um, that was unintended. So we will be doing that. And that is a key part of our role. That's that's really interesting. That just looking looking for jumps in trends might be an indicator that somebody needs to review their process and get back to you with more accurate data. Yep, and of course we're looking at that data across now dozens of DSPs, so we can also have a perspective that you know um, from the the market. Meaning, if we see that trends are generally consistent across most DSPs, but there's one that seems to be an outlier, now we can ask, well, is there something that explains that, or is there perhaps a problem there? So again having the ability to see that data across DSPs gives us a perspective that um, might have been more difficult in the past for rights holders who were um, maybe not as able to see that because they were getting the data from lots of different places. And then, of course, only seeing their piece of the data as opposed to um, the entire market of data, which we now will be able to see. Wow. It will be really interesting to see what insights come out of that, regardless of whether there's uh, accuracy issues so much as just cross-market, cross-platform um, insights that come from that. It'll be super interesting to see what comes from that. Uh, so now let's switch to the rights holder side. Who registers with the MLC? Is it the songwriter, the publisher, the publishing administrator? Explain that part of it to us. Yeah, you hinted at that question before, Dimitri, and it's a really important one. So uh, again, uh, it's worth reiterating that the MLC is the exclusive administrator of this new blanket license in the U.S. So that means that we'll be the only place that you can go to collect your share of any of those blanket mechanical royalties. What that means is if you're a publisher or a publishing administrator, you need to become a member of the MLC. Because one of your responsibilities, um, presumably as a publisher and administrator, is to collect money um, that is generated by the use of the songs that you manage. And since we're the exclusive place for this revenue stream, if you're not connected with us, you're literally not collecting all of the revenue that you need to collect. So for publishers, publishing administrators, you need to become a member of the MLC. And, uh, and I'm certainly happy that you know, thousands of, of them have done that. Um, and we think we've already gotten um, you know, really great uh, uh, membership sign up uh, among publishers. Um, but on the songwriter side, it's a little more nuanced, but, but maybe even a more important message because all of this is ultimately about getting money to songwriters, um, whether it goes through a publisher or an administrator or not. For songwriters, the question that they need to ask is, are you self-administered or, to put it another way, do you act as your own publisher? And that question can be really tricky for a number of reasons. The first one is, it may be that the answer is sometimes. Right? Some songwriters may be self-administering some of the songs they've written, but they've signed with a publisher or an administrator for other songs that they've written. So it isn't always a binary thing. It isn't always all or nothing. Um, there are also songwriters who um, perform for recordings in addition to writing songs. Some of them distribute their own music through some of the independent distributors or aggregators that are out in the market, companies that essentially allow people to get their sound recordings onto these digital platforms. Increasingly, those companies are also offering publishing administration services. 
So it could be that if you're a songwriter who also performs for your own sound recordings, when you distribute those sound recordings through one of those partner companies, you've also asked them to be your publishing administrator. So if that's the case, then you will receive your share of mechanicals, not from the MLC, but through that administrator that you've chosen. So the advice that we give to songwriters is um, think about all the partners that you have throughout your career. If you've ever worked with a publisher, call your publisher. If you are distributing sound recordings, check the deal that you've done with that sound recording distributor to see if they also offered and you accepted an add-on set of publishing administration services. If you've ever worked with an administrator, call them and ask them, you know, which of my songs do you help me with? Which ones are covered by our deal? If you have a lawyer, ask your lawyer. If you have a business manager, an accountant. But the point is you want to ask a lot of questions of those partners to try to figure out to what extent, if any, you are self-administered. And if the answer is you are self-administered, even for one song, you should become a member of the MLC because we will pay you mechanicals for that one song. So even if every other song you've written is covered by one of those other parties, we can still pay you and you can still be a member of the MLC so that you can get paid on that one song that isn't covered by your deals. Got it. I have a question, a follow-up on this. Let's say you are a songwriter that has a publisher or a publishing administrator that covers your entire catalog of songs, the, the things that you've written. Is there any reason for that type of songwriter to go to the MLC and do any form of registration? So if you are uh, totally covered uh, by a publishing deal or an admin deal, you don't have to register works. The, the act of registering the works is something that presumably your publisher or administrator is responsible for under your deal. It's essentially one of the things that, that um, they do for you in exchange for the piece of the revenue um, uh, they collect um, from your songs. But what you can do and what we're certainly encouraging all creators to do is to go to our website um, click on the yellow button at the top right side. It says public search and do a search under your name to see which works of yours are registered. Because even, even if someone else is ultimately responsible for doing that, um, because all of our data is publicly available, songwriters can still look for their data in our database and see whether it's all there or not. Is there a song missing? And then for the songs that are registered, they can look to see if the registrations are correct. Most songwriters will know what share of a work they have, right? If they co-wrote a song with someone else and they split the, the, the proceeds for that song 50-50, they know their share is 50-50. They can go look up that song in our database on the public search and they can look to see if the split is 50-50. So that's a great way that songwriters can make sure their data is accurate, even if they have a partner. And of course, the reason for doing that is um, if a publisher happened to make a mistake or an administrator missed something, you want to catch that and they want you to catch that. So it's, it's in your mutual interest to do that. And it's an easy thing that you can now do that you weren't able to do before. So um, for everybody who has an interest in a musical work, um, the data is there. Um, you can check the data and we encourage people to do that um, to see how things are set up. Got it. I think that if I was a songwriter and I listened to the last five minutes of this, I could follow those instructions. I could figure out who my publisher or my admin was, or you know that my my um, all my creations were covered in that way, and then I could double check the way you suggested with the yellow button and so forth. However, I wonder what happens if a songwriter tries to register and a publisher or an admin has already registered them. Is there a way to, to manage that? Does that create confusion about who's the owner of the primary song record in your database? Yeah, uh, certainly duplicates have the potential to create confusion, but our system would, would hopefully catch those. And um, 
you know, what would probably happen is you would see the, the number or the percentage of shares that were claimed for that work uh, quickly exceed 100, right? So if there were two writers to the song and they each had 50% shares and your co-writer properly registered their 50% share, you registered your 50% share, but your publisher registered your 50% share as well, those three 50% shares add up to 150. So that's something that we're going to see. And um, later this year, we'll roll out some functionality in the portal that actually flags that for everybody involved so they can quickly see, okay, there's a problem. 150% is not possible, right? You can't have more than 100%. Um, And then presumably the publisher would see that um, or the writer would see it or both and they would realize, hey, we're both trying to do the same thing. So um, we're, we're going to build in things like that that will help people in the system to see that those conflicts exist. But the best way to manage that is on the front end. And that's why, again, if you're a songwriter, the first thing we encourage you to do is to think about any of those partners you've had throughout your career and to call them first and, um, and let them help you figure out what they're already covering for you. I mean, the practical way to think about it is why do the work if someone's already doing it for you? You don't want to do it twice. So before you do that, give them a call, make sure you're aligned with them. And then you'll know you're not doing work unnecessarily. Got it. Okay. Makes sense to me. Look, we're going to take another quick break for an announcement. And when we come back, Chris, I'd like to ask you about the timeline of payouts, um, what's coming down the road. We'll be right back. We're giving Music Tectonics listeners the chance to speak up and win a prize. Every week, we pose a big question that you can answer in the Music Tectonics community app. At the end of the month, we'll choose the most awesome answer and send the winner one of my favorite books about business, music, technology, or just life. On this episode, we find out about a new wave of revenue coming to publishers, publishing administrators, and self-published writers. What will be the next new revenue streams that emerge in the digital era? Look for the post that goes with this episode in the Music Tectonics community app. We'll tag it hashtag the big question and answer in the comments. If you're not a member yet, we'll tell you how to join at the end of the episode. Now back to the show. Okay, we are back. I wanted to ask you, what is the timeline of payouts, Chris? When will the DSP backlog that we've been hearing in the news about this $426 million in royalties from historic uh, unpaid mechanical royalties, when will that get paid out? Sure, it's actually 424. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't want to overstate it. Um, so the, uh, the interesting thing about the way the statute was written is that digital services had to deliver those unmatched historic royalties if they decided to do that um, on the same day that um, we began to receive the first usage files for January's period, the new royalties that we're receiving under the blanket. In addition, the DSPs actually haven't delivered all of the data we need for the historical unmatched. They have until June 15th to deliver some remaining data that we need in order to determine how to allocate that money among the writers of the works. So even though the first big bit of money we received was the unmatched, we're actually going to begin paying blanket royalties first. That first distribution of blanket royalties for the month ending January will happen mid to late April. Thereafter, we will account on a monthly basis, which tracks the way the DSPs account to us also on a monthly basis. And um, and then later in the year, after we've gotten that additional data from the D- DSPs, um, we'll be able to make the historic data available as well. All of the unmatched data that we have, whether it's historical or relates to new periods under the blanket, um, we'll make that available in our portal for members to see. And there will also be some public access as well. So the folks can be looking for things of theirs that they might be missing. 
And then we, of course, will be doing lots to try to match that activity on our end as well. So the, uh, the timing on the 424 million is going to be later in the year, but the first distributions for January, the new money under the blanket license will actually go out again, mid to late April. And then kind of the DSPs will be um, reconciling each month after that. And so can we sort of expect to see like a wave of payments every month after late April? Yeah, we will be accounting on a monthly basis. So once that process gets up and running, um, the DSPs are accounting to us on a monthly basis and we account out on a monthly basis. So we will be monthly um, for as long as we operate. Exciting. You get to send out money. That's Yes. <laughs> There'll be some happy Incredibly people. Incredibly exciting. Yeah. And, and, and if, if, uh, you know, I think it's really important too to acknowledge we've done a ton of work since um, we really started to build this company. I joined a year and now two months ago. But but the truth is all of that was preparation for that first distribution. And that's our mission is to pay mechanical royalties accurately and on time to rights holders. So um, all of this has sort of been preparation for the race. And the race really begins um, when we send out those first distributions. And that's what's going to matter to our members. So we're excited to get to that point where we can begin delivering on the promise of the MMA for them by paying them. Awesome. Got it. Okay. All right. I kind of want to switch gears around uh, awareness around this. Um, and I don't want to confuse things, but I want to I want to bring up Sound Exchange just because though they are collecting and paying out a totally different type of royalty to a different group of users, there seem to be some parallels. Um, both organizations were created through legislation and then they were charged to run independently, which is pretty cool. And their beneficiaries need to register with each organization. Now, I remember Sound Exchange spent a lot of energy building awareness among featured artists and sound recording copyright owners to get them to register. How far along are you at the MLC and getting that type of awareness? And what else are you going to do this year to make sure all the songwriters, publishers, and administrators are registered? Yeah, great question. That That's one of the things that we were able to do pretty much out of the gate. So um, in fact, just the other day, I spoke to a group uh, here in Nashville that I had spoken to a year ago in February in person. It was one of the few events that um, I was able to do in person before COVID. And um, it marked a one-year anniversary since we had spoken with them the last time and told them of the first bits about the MLC. Uh, the pandemic has certainly uh, challenged us in some ways, but I also think it's enabled us to do um, outreach really effectively in ways that we probably wouldn't have done had we not been dealing with this. So the short answer is in 2020, we did 100 webinars and uh, we had almost 13,000 people attend those webinars. So we were able to speak with almost 13,000 people individually um, in these small groups in webinars during 2020. And we've continued that torrid pace of doing webinars um, and other events like that um, through social media on an almost daily basis. Um, I did one this morning on Clubhouse, which is uh, a brand new platform that um, is really connecting with a lot of folks in the creative industries. And um, we've already done two there. So that's been um, our focus is, you know, how many webinars can we do? How many organizations can we connect with in the industry that have members um, uh, who might potentially be members of the MLC? And, uh, and then we try to spread the word one group at a time, one person at a time. Awesome. Sounds good. Sounds like you're having fun trying out Clubhouse and being on webinars as much as the rest of us. <laughs> but it's honestly a great, um, it's a really great way to reach people. You know, we, we landed pretty early on a format for an hour webinar where we spend 20 minutes presenting information in a deck because it's always helpful for people to see some things on, on screen. Then we do like a 20 minute discussion where we've got some preceded questions. 
but we always try to leave 20 minutes for Q&A. And, you know, in those 20 or sometimes 30 minutes, because we often run over and we, we try to stay as long as their questions, we can answer dozens of questions. I think one of our webinars, we answered 100 questions. Um, so to be able to answer that many questions one-on-one in front of a group of people that are also interested in the answer is a really powerful thing. You wouldn't do that if you were given a keynote at some you know, organization's event or speaking at a lunch. You'd, you'd give your remarks and maybe you'd answer two questions from the audience and then you'd hang out afterward for a few minutes to talk to the handful of people that wanted to see you. But in these webinars, in that format, we can talk and answer hundreds of questions um, or dozens of questions each webinar. And I think that's been really effective in helping people to understand what we do, how we fit into their lives, and, and ultimately whether they need to become members or not. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, we're getting close here. I want to ask you just two more things. One is, what benchmarks are you using to know if you're successful? And and when do you hope to achieve those benchmarks? By? <laughs> it's another great question. So right now, um, a lot of the benchmarks have been operational. You know, Have we done certain things within the time frame we need them done? Um, and that's in part because so much of what we're doing is preparing to start paying people. Um, and the out. Uh, outreach metrics that I shared with you a moment ago are an example of that. You know, we we hoped that we could do 100 webinars, but we didn't know. And sure enough, we did 100 right on the nose. We thought it'd be great if we could, you know, connect with 10,000 people in those webinars, and we we reached almost 13,000. Our overall engagement, um, we were trying to track all the different ways we connected with people. Um, you know, we we were able to engage directly with more than 20,000 people through writing me, and so those were kind of the benchmarks um, this year. But now we're very much pivoting toward how much do we receive, how much can we pay out. So in the future, um, benchmarks will be based on those financial things and you know things like match rates, um, all of uh, the things that relate to the payment process. Got it. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Does, that doesn't sound like an easy pivot to switch from raising awareness to um, handling all those reconciliation of, of, of money and, and royalties. Um, but uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll get a great response from that. Yes, it certainly <laughs> is helpful now. It becomes real for people in ways that matter. And, um, and that, will, that will also help our outreach too, quite frankly. Good point. Good point. All right. Well, as we wrap up, Chris, what message would you like to leave our listeners with? The, the message I would, I would leave you all with is I know that a lot of this can be complicated in part because the music business was complicated before the MLC even came on the scene. And many people are not always clear on how all this fits together, how it works. So um, what I would encourage anyone listening to do, if, if you're not sure how this all works or you have questions, go to our website, www.themlc.com. There's a lot of information on the website. We've tried to tailor that information so that there are some pieces that are directed to songwriters, some directed to publishers. There are pieces for DSPs. And um, you know, spend some time there um, checking out the information that we have posted for purpose of helping you understand what we do. Uh, if you are a songwriter or a publisher, um, become a member or think about whether you should become a member. Again, for songwriters, it's self-administered or self-published songwriters that need to become members. Check your data. Um, and then uh, you can um, sign up for our newsletter. We do a monthly newsletter that's really informative. Follow us on social media. We post lots of content on social media. It's a great way to connect with folks. And then finally, we've got a really great support team. Um, and they're available 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday, and nine hours a day on Saturday. We thought it was really important, given that we serve a creative um, group of people um, that we not just have nine to five business hours. Um, so you can reach us early in the morning and late at night, and you can reach us on Saturdays for most of the day. And uh, that team is available to answer questions one-on-one 
Um, so anyone that has questions, give us a call, drop us an email and, uh, and let us try to help. Awesome. Chris, this has been great. Thanks so much for diving in with us on the MLC, uh, where things are at, where they're going. It's been a, a, a real pleasure and also super informative. Thanks for making it so easy for me. Right. Dimitri, <laughs> thanks for everything you're doing to help us. And uh, thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it. South by Southwest is going all digital in 2021 from March 16th to March 20th. How will a virtual event spark that Keep Austin weird energy that makes South by week so crazy and fun? Music Tectonics is here to help. I'm throwing an official South by Southwest Music Tech Meetup at 4 p.m. on March 17th. That's 4 p.m. on March 17th. We'll meet on Zoom so we can welcome everyone in the same big room. Be ready to introduce yourself and make connections. This is not a lean back webinar. Plus, recapture the secret backdoor vibe of venue hopping at an awesome festival. Unofficial Music Tech Meetups will pop up at different virtual venues on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of that week. Meet up as a 3D avatar in the metaverse, speed network on camera, and audio chat with voices from all around you. Find RSVP links for each experience at musictectonics.com. Keep music tech weird. Hey, thank you for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Become a part of the Music Tectonics community, a social network just for music tech aficionados like you. It's free to join. Use it on the web at app.musictectonics.com or find the mobile app for Apple and Android devices in the relevant app stores. Connect with people from all corners of music and tech, answer the big question, and meet me there on Together Tuesdays. There's more about the community app, this podcast episode, our annual conference, and our newsletter at musictectonics.com. Peace! You're listening to Music Tectonics.